0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to pick up in uh, verse 17 where we left off. And I, you know I'm just curious, and you don't have to show your hands, but I'll, I'll ask the question, how beneficial has this study been for you? When you, we're going through this gospel, because I can tell you from, from my personal life, going through it, for me, this is the second time, verse by verse, it's, it's only been affirmation that this is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Because John is so clear with what he's trying to communicate. And so I can look at these passages, and I know, and, and you know this, right? Because we, we talk about this every single week, what the purpose of John's gospel is. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, clear purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And we've seen several signs, right? The signs that that John has recorded for us to point to this, to Jesus as the Son of God. In chapter 1, it started so small, and I, I love this. I was looking back over this this morning, where he had, divine knowledge was revealed as he, he told Nathanael, I knew you were under a fig tree. And Nathanael responds Is you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, if you think that I'm the Son of God because of that, you're going to see something much greater. And it's, it's neat now that we've been, we're in chapter 11 and we've seen all these other things that Jesus has done. And you go back to chapter 1, and he tells Nathanael, You have no idea what you're about to get into. In chapter two, we saw the divine power over creation as he turned water into wine out of nothing, he didn't add anything to it, just there it is. Chapter four, we saw divine healing by the spoken word of Jesus, where he just said, Go, your son is healed. Chapter 5, we saw divine authority revealed and the fact that He healed on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the Lord, and so He he took authority over that and He performed that miracle. In chapter 6, we saw divine provision of life as as Jesus fed the multitude and He declared Himself as as a reflection of that miracle, guys, I am the bread of life. That I'm the one that provides you nurturing, and sustenance that will never end. That bread, you're coming back to me today because you're hungry, right? If you remember when we walked through that, they followed him so they could get more food. And Jesus like, you're missing the point. I did that miracle so that you could see that I am the bread of life. And as we progress through this gospel, those miracles become even more miraculous. We saw how he healed a blind man that was born blind in chapter 9. Something that no one had ever done. That comes up again this, this morning in our text because they're thinking, if he can do that, couldn't he have prevented Lazarus from dying? And then in chapter 11, this morning, we see how he resurrected a man who had been dead for days. Of course, all of this is leading up to that miraculous resurrection of himself after being in the tomb three days. That's where we're going. So to recap from last week, we saw the illness and death of Jesus's friend Lazarus. And to pull out a couple key verses for you so that you can can see where we're going this morning, but remember what the main point of that was. In John chapter 11 verses 3 through 4, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you remember, Blake talked about how when when we're looking at this specific book, this book is not about man. And we, we can see that in this statement by Jesus where he says, This illness is for what? The glory of God. And in fact, that's what all of Scripture is for. It reveals to us who God is, His glory, so that we may know Him. And that played out in Jesus delaying two days, right? It was so weird when you read that. Jesus loved this man, and so He waited two days. Why? Why? Because it wasn't about Lazarus. And so I would caution you this morning, it's a fun thing to think about. What was Lazarus thinking whenever he came back to life and all this stuff? But look, it's not about Lazarus. This is about Jesus, the Son of God. And so he waited two days, allowing for enough time for this illness to claim Lazarus's life so that it would not be misunderstood who he is whenever he resurrects this man. One other section that I thought was helpful as far as the main point of that passage last week, John chapter 11, verses 14 through 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. He's speaking to his disciples here. And he says, it is for your sake. I'm glad I was not there. What's going on in chapter 11 is Jesus is beginning to transition. If you recall, whenever Jesus performed that miracle where he turned water into wine, who saw that miracle? Do you remember? The disciples. The disciples that were with him were the only ones that really knew besides the servants what had happened. Because at that point, Jesus had focused His ministry on those disciples as they prepared to go out public ministry. Because Jesus knew He was going to be persecuted. He knew it was going to be tough. And so He's preparing them so that they would have faith and believe in who He says He was. Now He's been public for this time, and right here, I mean, we are weeks away from when Jesus will have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So He's transitioning here in chapter 11, focusing his ministry back on his disciples. As we move forward in the chapter 12 and so forth, you're going to see Jesus is specifically addressing his disciples, preparing them for the time that he will leave, that he will depart from them. And so here he says, it's for your sake. I'm glad I was not there. I'm going to give you undeniable proof that will shore up your faith in me, that you'll know that I'm the Christ. The Son of God. So he is going to lay down his life for his sheep because he's the Good Shepherd. And as he does that, this is the last sign actually recorded by John. This is the last miracle besides that of himself where he resurrects himself. But this is the last one that John includes to point to this truth of his identity we're going to cover a lot of ground this week. We're going from verse 17 through 44. It's a lot, but this is a narrative, and so there's a lot of detail of setting information, and so I'll give you that as we move forward, but I'm going to point your attention to three sections. Three truths taught. We will see a divine claim. We will see divine brokenness, And then we will see divine power. And in each one of those sections, as we go through, I want you to see the contrast between the divine and man. Because what's going to happen is Jesus is going to make a divine claim, and man is going to have their own understanding of what that claim means, and then Jesus will clarify. Man is going to be broken in a different way from the way Jesus will be broken. And then when we look at power divine power, you'll see that in contrast to man's powerlessness. As we get into the text, I was reminded, as I look at Mary and Martha and the Jews who are grieving over the loss of their loved one Lazarus, I was reminded of my grandmother who recently passed. And when I think about that, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and I can relate to that and several of you can as well. You've lost a loved one. And I thought about some of the despair that I saw with people in the family. And then I saw some people who had a greater hope. And that's where we are. That's where we're going this morning is we're going to see despair and Jesus is the one providing that greater hope, and He's trying to get His point across. You'll see that when we get to the, the divine brokenness. But I want you to be able to relate to the people in this story. Mary and Martha specifically. Because even with our knowledge that there is a greater hope, I find it far too often out of our control really because we are human beings that we find ourselves in their position not able to see the greater perspective sometimes but we we grieve and we mourn because life is hard and after you've put yourself in their position i hope you see the glory of jesus christ because that's what they're about to see so let's get into the divine claim John 11, verses 17 through 27. And I'm going to start, I'm going to move, I'm going to start at each teaching point that I have as we go through this section. Verse 17 first. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. I'm going to stop there because four days is significant. I know some of you are nurses, some of you have, are into biology. I did some research because I'm a math person, spreadsheet kind of a guy, but I, I did some research into what really occurs in a body that has died over the course of four days. And I found the first thing is something called algor mortis, obviously that's a Latin term, but the body, body rapidly cools down to room temperature. As soon as that heart starts, stops beating, the body cools. And then rigor mortis steps in. And what that is, is the blood coagulates in the veins, the arteries, and the capillaries, and basically the body becomes stiff. It stiffens up. That's within two to six hours. Over the course of the next few days, what's happened there is there are still some cells alive in that dead body. And so the bacteria that we naturally have in our bodies begin to attack those cells and they decompose them. They break them down and it gives off a sulfurous gas with a horrible smell. We'll see that come up today. And if you read, ever read from the King James Version, nowadays it's kind of humorous because Jesus says, remove the stone and, and Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. But that's what's happened, is he's been dead for four days, and so his body is giving off this sulfuric gas, and it, it stinks. But not only that, but the gas builds up in the body, causing the body to expand. And so the tongue is forced out of the mouth. The eyes are forced out of the sockets. And then over the course of the next few months, the body will eventually bust open and completely decompose. Four days. This is what's happening naturally to this man. Not only that, but the Jews believe that the soul hovered over the body, seeking an opportunity to re-enter for three days. So in their culture, this is significant. And I love that because this is the living word. So it's almost like, Jesus knew one day we were not going to believe that. We don't believe that the body hovers around for three days. But in that immediate context, they did. But then we do understand science. We've been able to identify what happens to a dead body over the course of three to four days. And we would be able to see how miraculous this was. There is no doubt this man was completely dead and had been. So by waiting until the fourth day, Jesus ensured that all would know and believe that he was performing an incredible work. Then you get to verse 18 through 20, and you just get a little bit of the setting and the information, right? This is a narrative. John is giving us details. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. I'll touch on this a little bit later, but what we have here, are you have people who are coming in to help comfort the family. We do that. We know what that's like. But the fact that these people walked for two miles says something about this specific family. More than likely, this family was wealthy or at least they're well-known and well-regarded. Because there is a large group of people what's happened, what's going to happen is they're going to stay there all week well not this specific family cuz he's going to be raised to life but normally they would stay there all week and in verse 20 so when martha heard that jesus was coming she went and met him but mary remained seated in the house blake blake read this last week and i thought it was really interesting the fact that mary takes off and martha i mean mary martha took off and mary still stayed in the house We've seen Mary and Martha before as a church. We've seen how Jesus was there teaching and Mary sat at His feet in the moment, soaking it all in. Martha was the one busying herself, preparing the food, and being the one that's hospitable. She's a busybody. That's what she does. And I think about... Whether it be in a a funeral setting or if if it's just a family gathering around the holidays, we have individuals like this, don't we, in our families? Like I can think on either side of my family, I know of one or two people that, no matter what's going on, we're having a good time in discussion. They're working. They're the the ones washing the dishes. They're the ones preparing the food. They're the ones that are busying themselves. That's that's who Martha is. And so when she hears that Jesus is coming, look, she's got people all around her. They're trying to comfort her. She's the type of person who's like, I'm just going to get out of here, and I'm going to go see him. Mary, on the other hand, we've seen her personality. She lives in the moment. And she takes it all in, and she's, she's grieving. And we'll see her later on. She's going to come to Jesus, and we'll see the mourning, the brokenness. But she probably didn't even know Jesus was coming, honestly. And we'll see that later on in context. Then we see the conversation between Martha and Jesus, and it is in this conversation that Jesus makes that divine claim. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'm going to keep going because I want you to see this in context in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. If you were just to read verse 21 on its own, it almost seems like she's accusing Jesus, right? Lord, I know if you had been here, he would still be alive. But you weren't here and he's dead. He's dead. That's not where she's coming from. What she says is, Lord, I know that if you had been here, he'd still be alive. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. What she is communicating here is that she does have faith in Jesus. However, she has not been able to to see the full glory yet of Jesus. Because what is implied in her response to Jesus is that she believes that Jesus could have prevented death that he could have healed him. But but when Jesus starts talking about the resurrection, it doesn't click for her. She hasn't fully seen the fact that he can raise from dead to life. But you see this, the human mentality, right? This is man's perspective. Because Jesus goes on to say, your brother will rise again. And we know where Jesus is going with that statement, but she didn't. And so what does she say? Martha said to him in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She thinks Jesus is comforting her just like everybody else is comforting her. That there is a hope in the future that he will be resurrected on the last day. That's what happens. I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever lost someone, but when people try to comfort you, you're going to hear a lot of these statements, right? They're in a better place. We'll see them again one day. That's the same kind of a statement that was being made here. Only Jesus is not saying He's going to be resurrected on the last day. He's thinking a bigger picture here. But understand, it's man's perspective. And that's what John's doing here in, in this Gospel. He's, he's d- differentiating man from Jesus, who is Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus says, no, you don't understand, Martha. In verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. She says, yeah, I know. He'll be resurrected on the last day. And he's like, I am the resurrection. And what he's saying there is, I'm the one that will accomplish that resurrection on the last day. That it is through me that that will even be possible that I have the, the power and authority over life and death. He's saying that he will accomplish the resurrection on the last day by his resurrection on the third day. That he is the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to say this very difficult statement if you just if you read it through without pausing. It, You're trying to figure out what it says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's confusing. But when you slow down and take it bit by bit, what Jesus is saying here is whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet shall he live. Now, that live, I'm going to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what he was referring to, and I still don't know. I can give you two true statements, but I don't know exactly what he was trying to say. Though one will die physically, yet they shall live spiritually? Yes. Physically? Yes. Because Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. It is through me that they will be resurrected on the last day. So there is a physical resurrection involved, and there is a spiritual life, eternal life, that's going on here. And so it could be either or. But what he is saying is, though one will die physically, they shall live forever. And then he goes on to say, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die spiritually. We can't deny the fact that we die. And Blake brought up an accident. Last Thursday, on my way north on 27, there was a a man, I guess, in his 40s, involved in a terrible accident. I don't know what happened, but he came across 27, across two lanes, and hit someone head-on. I drove by that car. The front was in the back. That man lost his life. We can't deny that. In this text, Lazarus has lost his life. But what Jesus is saying is, if you believe in me, you will never die spiritually, though you would die physically. And then he says, do you believe this? And I love her response. She said, it's almost like she knew John's purpose statement. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, I am recording these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you would have life in His name. Jesus says, if you believe in Me, you will have life. Do you believe? She says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see the comparison there. The divine claim versus man's perception of that claim. Then we get into the divine brokenness. We get some more setting and information here. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. That's why I believe that Mary didn't know Jesus was coming. Because when she does find out that he's there, she gets up quickly and goes to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. They're going to comfort her. Look, in in their time, they actually hired people. They were professional mourners, professional wailers, people that would get hired to cry. And yell and wail. And when I think of wailing, I think of uh, one time I had to make a hospital visit and a, a little boy had passed away and I heard his family wailing, crying out. And that's what these people got paid to do. So whenever she's going to the tomb, they're going to follow her. They want to be there to comfort her. Now, some of these aren't professionals. Some of these are actually family. So they're going to go follow her as well because they want to make sure she's going to be okay and that she's not going to do anything crazy. We want to be there to help her. And then you get to the human brokenness. I want you to see Mary's brokenness here. In verses 32 through 33. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She fell at his feet. Martha comes to him, you don't see that description. When Mary comes out to him, she falls at his feet. And Jesus, it goes on in verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also. Weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled I, I, before we get to his deep, deep movement of spirit and the, and the greatly troubled part I want you to focus on the human aspect first he is seeing people who are broken she is weeping at his feet over the loss of her brother Lazarus knowing she says the same thing that Martha said right I know if you had been here, he'd still be alive. And the fact is, Jesus, if if you look at the timeline, there's no way Jesus would have been able to get there before Lazarus actually died. By the time he found out, it would have been impossible for him to get there. Lazarus has been dead for four days at this point. By the time they send word to him, he receives that word. It was too late. But he made sure it was too late, by staying two days. She's broken. You get a feeling of hopelessness there. But there's no hope to bring Lazarus back. It's, this is it. And then we'll see the divine brokenness. It, it's different. Look, in verse 33, let's go through that again because that's where it starts. When when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That phrase comes up later on, deeply moved. In verse 38, Jesus is deeply moved again. And when you look at that phrase, it's different from what we might initially think. Now, I'm not going to disregard the fact that Jesus wept, because he did, in fact, weep, and I'll talk about that. But this phrase, actually, literally, it means to snort like a horse. Deeply moved means to snort like a horse. It is a response of indignation and anger. Now, why would he be angry in this moment right here? Someone, a family that he loves dearly. They're weeping. Why is he angry? A couple of ideas. Could be the hypocrisy of the Jews, right? He sees Mary weeping for a true reason, and he sees these people who are hired, hired professionals just crying. And they're not there because they believe in Jesus. She says... I know if you had been here, he'd still be alive, but that's not where they are. That's possible. I think more than likely, what we're looking at is Jesus seeing the effect of sin. Sin that leads to death. Remember, this is the eternal word. Going all the way back to John 1. He was in the beginning with God. What is God? He created all things. There's nothing that was created that was not created by him. And so he knows what happened in that garden, the original sin that has passed on. He knows why he's come to be the second Adam, to put an end to that, so that in him, whereas all have died in Adam, all will have life in him. But what he sees is the effect of sin it's hopelessness. That's what he sees. He sees a people who are at his feet, the Savior of the world, and they can't lift their eyes up to see that he's the answer. They're hopeless, everything is dark for them. And so, what we have here is Jesus doesn't like sin. And he doesn't like the the effects of sin that it produces in people, in his creation. So he's indignant to that. So he said in verse 34, where have you laid him? He's angry. All right, that's it. I'm going to show you that you don't have to be hopeless. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Now the word therefore wept. Is different from the weeping that we saw in Mary. Mary is very emotional, wailing, kind of weeping. Jesus wept is a sudden outburst of silent tears, is what that is. He's broken for a different reason. He loved Lazarus, no doubt, but he also knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's broken over the disparity of man, that the effect that sin has over man, and He's broken over that. Because these are the people that He came to give His life for. He came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. And what He sees right now is not that. It's hopelessness and it's despair, and it causes Him to weep. He's troubled by that. So it says Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. A lot of us know that. Two words. There's a lot going on in those two words. The divine claim versus man's perception, divine brokenness versus man's brokenness. You see the difference. Then we get to the divine power. And you'll see it in contrast to man's powerlessness. In verse 36, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? You have to understand that everybody that's here, they're not on Jesus' side. This is accusing Jesus. Couldn't he have done something? They're taking this moment and trying to spin it so that people will be turned against him. Couldn't this guy, the one who healed a blind man from birth, have done something to stop this man from dying? What is Jesus' response to that statement? says he's deeply moved again. It's that same phrase. He's not sad here over that. He's angry. He's indignant to their accusation. And he comes to the tomb and says it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, who has not yet seen the full glory of Christ, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. But Lord, he stinketh. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Going all the way back to where we started in chapter 11, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Martha, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? See, what we have here is man's powerlessness over death. We can't do anything to prevent death. I mean, I hate, I hate to say it, but the reality is that any one of us could leave here today and we can get in an accident and we can die. We don't have that control of the whole world. But there's a divine power that's involved here, who does have power over life and death. And so Jesus, after they take away the stone in verse 41, lifts up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is an awkward conversation, right? If you're in this crowd of people, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I'm only saying that so that these people around me will know. (laughs) It's like (laughs) he's talking about them in their presence. And what I've, I, I actually saw this this morning as I was preparing. Heard is past tense. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. If you remember, what did, what did Martha say? Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give to you. And then Jesus here says, I thank you that you've heard me. I'm pretty sure Lazarus is alive right there. That he's already alive. It's past tense. He's already spoken to his father. He's already done this. It's not the moment where Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, that Lazarus then resurrects to life. I think he's already alive in this tomb. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. the miracles get better and better, more glorious as we move through this gospel. What we saw where we've, we've seen Jesus be able to heal people in their presence. We've seen Jesus heal somebody by the spoken word. It seems like Jesus just thought it when it came to Lazarus and he brought him back to life. He had this moment of prayer with his father and said, hey, let's do this. Let's reveal our glory. Let's bring Lazarus back from the dead. And then he says, Thank you that you heard me. They've removed the stone, he's alive. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, Unbind him and let him go. And that's where this part ends. We don't see, we don't get a description of the the joyous reunion with Lazarus and his sisters. We're left to wonder in the awe and amazement at the glory of Jesus Christ. I I love the fact that John did that because John could have, he included a lot of details in this narrative but he doesn't include anything that would distract us from his main point, and that is so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the resurrection and the life. Believe in him. And though you are dead, as we are naturally, you will have life. Believe in him, and though you may die physically, you will live. Next week, we'll see the responses to that from the Jews' perspective. But we're left here. Jesus says, come out, Lazarus. All right, let him go. Take, take everything off of him and y'all go on. The implication this morning is one of belief. Like, you know, when we got when we were looking at the good shepherd, there's some implications there for how we may be good shepherds. We can't bring someone back from the dead. There's not a direct command now to say go and do so likewise. But there is one who can. And the question is, do we believe that? You know, that question that he asked Martha when he said I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live. Condensed version. And he says, Do you believe that? That same question is what's being asked of us this morning. Do you believe that? Do we walk and believe in the power of Christ, or do we walk and live in our own powerlessness? When all things look hopeless, do we look to the one who has provided us with a greater hope? Are we broken for the things that, that God is broken for? What did we, we see? He was broken for sin's presence in the lives of people He loved. He's broken for the effect of hopelessness and darkness does that break us? When we see someone living in darkness or when we identify sin in our own lives, do we just push it to the side or do we, are we broken for that? Because we have a Savior as we move forward in this gospel that we will see went to the cross and died on our behalf so that we don't have to walk in that. So we don't have to live in hopelessness. And then the other question is, outside of ourselves, how do we engage hopelessness around us with the good news that Jesus has brought? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And if your response is any different from that of Martha where she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. If your answer to that is different, then I plead with you to give your life over to Him. To follow Him. Trust in Him who has the power over all of life and death. See His glory. John 1, 14. Glory is of the only Son from the Father who is blessed forever. This morning we're left. I'm, I'm going to leave this in the same place that John left. We're left in the wonder and amazement at the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who can wait a couple days while his best friend, not his best friend, but one of his friends dies. I don't want to exaggerate. One of his loved ones passes away so that the glory may be seen. We're left to wonder and amazement at that. We're left to wonder and amazement at the fact that this man can go and proclaim something and say, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he brings back someone from the dead who had been dead for four days. We're left to wonder in amazement at the Son of God. And so I would invite you to express that wonder with praise this morning in song and in prayer. Father, You are glorious. Your Son is glorious. You have power over all things. You are sovereign over all of Your creation. And at the mention of Your Word, You bring life from death. Father, let us see the comparison here between the the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Christ, because even that is more glorious in Christ. Father, we know that Lazarus was raised to live again, but he was in a mortal body and would pass away as well. Your Son, as glorious as He is, is resurrected in a glorified body. And we know that one day we will as well. Father, will You remind us, will You engrave this into our hearts and our minds that there is a greater hope beyond the despair that we experience in this life. So that when we find ourselves feeling hopeless, we cling to the only hope that we have in Your Son, Jesus. So that despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, Father, we can respond in praise because Your Son is always worthy to be praised. And so we do that now